Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 82 people incarcerated at the Weber County Jail have tested positive for the coronavirus. It's the largest outbreak yet in a Utah jail facility. Washington County Jail officials also reported a large spread of COVID-19 cases in their jail. 59 inmates testing positive so far, nearly 20% of the jail population. That was the report from the Salt Lake Tribune earlier this month. We're going to update that today, and we're going to take a look at the coronavirus pandemic's effects in Utah's jails and prisons. Later in the hour, we'll be talking with Salt Lake Tribune reporter Jessica Miller. And uh, right now, we uh, start a conversation with uh, Myra Cristobal. Her husband contracted COVID-19 in jail and is incarcerated still in the Weber County Jail. We recorded this conversation about an hour ago. First of all... uh, my name is Myra Cristobal. And your husband is still incarcerated, is he? Is this Weaver County Jail? Yes, Weaver County Jail. Uh, how long has he been uh, there at the jail? He's been there since um, November. Since November, all right. And then, of course, as, we, as we've seen in the, the news, Weaver County Jail had a, had a fairly large outbreak of, uh, of COVID. And unfortunately, your, your husband um, got COVID, right? Yes. Um, so, and this was, a, 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 I'm reading an email from him, a, a pretty bad case, sounds like. Yes, it is, and he's been trying to get help, and um, even last Wednesday, he was calling me, he kept on calling me, he's like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and I kept on calling the, the jail, there was no answer. I called, for about 10 times I called, and he and the other inmates were trying to get a hold of uh, somebody to come help him. And they're like, oh, yeah, we called medical, we called medical, and for it was, this went on for three hours, and I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. I was pacing around in my house. I was calling. I was texting people that nobody knew what to do, you know, um, until finally me, my, my, my mother-in-law, she had a call through. She called in through visiting, and she demanded them to go. Somebody had to go see my my husband, and that's when finally... They came over and they saw him, but it wasn't. Even, it was through a screen. It was through the video thing. They wouldn't even get in there with them, and to see them like personally. Hmm. So it's very, you know, like it's just through the video screen. So it's a little bit. It's a lot frustrating, you know, because he thought he was going to die, you know, and he didn't. We don't know what's going on, and there's just no. And they told him that he'll be fine, and they they have no. Um, they had no empathy for him or anybody there else there. The girl, the nurse that um, seen him is like, well, everybody thinks that now they have COVID, they're going to go home. And they're not, he said to him. And so that was really, that really hurt me a lot when, when I heard my husband tell me that, you know, that that they're treated that way there, that mm-hmm. they're not really being taken seriously, you know, that they, and that, that, you know, and he's like, well, why don't you come in here and see me? No, don't worry. You know, um, this is not really that bad. They try to downplay everything. I downplay the whole thing, you know. And my husband's like, "Well, I've I've um, heard that you know, like all these things that could happen." And she's like, "No, don't worry. Everything is fine." And he's like, "Well, why don't you come in here and see me, person?" And he's like, he's like, "Well, there's no use of me going in there and getting infected myself." So, and they they've gotten one mask since March, and that's all they have. They have nothing else but the the officers, when they go do their rounds in there, they're in full, like, hazard gears. You know, they have the whole suit up, and they have masks on, like, and they have nothing in there. And, I mean, it's scary, because I don't know what's going to happen. And he's still sick, and this he, has gone he, on for the he, whole month. He's still sick. Uh, and I he's guess th- this particular incident, when he re- reached out for you... Uh, I guess he was uh, he was quite worried because he says he he felt he couldn't breathe. Yes, he couldn't breathe. Yeah, uh, but but he's saying that uh, the the medical personnel are slow in coming, and when they do, they they essentially kind of treat him through the, I guess through the bars through the slot. Yes. Yeah, uh, is that uh, the, does he say that is that the case with other inmates as well? Yes, that's. And there's other inmates that are much older than him, and there's other ones that have um, that are going through dialysis and they have other things going on, and they're just left to their own devices there, and 
you know. And uh, he says, and I guess you made reference to this as well, uh, from his point of view, uh, not he doesn't have proper equipment. No, to, he to doesn't. Himself. Okay. Um, so uh, he, he makes reference in his email um, uh, to the fact that there are um, as, as federal inmates uh, just awaiting trial, but inmates who have not uh, been convicted, uh, who are, I guess, uh, subject to the same conditions. He, he, he makes reference to that. Yeah, he has not, and he will not, the, his uh, public defender already told us he's not going to see trial this year. So he's going to be there years, I don't know how long, without being going to trial. And I think that's outrageous because, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Like, he's just going to be there for nothing. And then when he goes to court, um, he gets the, the, the charge gets dismissed in all those years. And now he's been subject to COVID. And we don't know the long-lasting effects it's going to have on him. So, I mean, they want I want something to be done either release them or give them the proper equipment for them to be able to, you know, not be sick. They're trying to take away everything from them. I don't I don't know. I think that if, I'm scared that he's going to die in there. That's mm. what I'm scared. That's what my fear is. So or, you, and not just him, everybody else in there. Yeah. I call and everybody's there stressed. They have anxiety. And I call and I let him know, I'm like, how is everybody else doing? He's like, well, we're not doing good. It's just, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Everybody's scared in there more than usual. So you would, uh, I guess you would like for, I guess, uh, some inmates to, be, inmates to be released, I guess, temporarily, or or at least better equipment? Yes, uh, at least released um, pre-trial. You know, who's ever there pre-trial, I would like that to be happen, and, and them to be giving more, at least some medicine or proper treatment, you know, some proper masks, but they're in such close quarters that it's really hard for them. You know, like they have, they can't social distance. You know, they don't really have like um, hand sanitizer. So there's nothing. I think it's just going to, and there's no immunity to this. So are they just going to continue keep getting over and over again? We don't know. You know? Right. And then just, just for there to be somebody, some more empathy, some more sympathy for them, you know? Because they're, every time they're getting called on, they're like, oh, well, you think you're going to go home? You know, kind of mocking them, it seems to me. You know, and it's they're human, and even if they are in jail, and they deserve to be treated with respect, in in, in the sense that they're sick, you know, and taken seriously, and not just been like, oh, well, you're just trying to get out. He was just trying to get help. He wasn't trying to go home right there. You know, he was just trying to. He didn't know what else to do, and it took hours. And if it would have been something more serious, he would have died, and and they would have, you know, nobody would have taken responsibility for that. Uh, in his email, he says, we feel like we have no voice, uh, uh, quoting him, but because society sees this as nothing more than criminals, we feel there's no concern or compassion for our lives. Do you do you, do you see that? Do you feel that? I agree 100%. I, I'm the one that's coming, uh, messaging you guys, messaging everybody that would hear, you know, hear us. Um, I'm a single mom with three kids at home. I'm sick. I have an autoimmune disease. I work, but I'm still the only one. I mean, I know the public defenders are, are they have other cases, but I'm the only one that's been messaging everybody, trying to get a hold of somebody, trying to have someone hear me. Because if it wasn't for me, nobody would be listening. Like, I wouldn't be right here right now with you, mm-hmm. you know? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think the lawmakers care. I don't think they're the last people on the list that, you know? And since they're in there, it just doesn't, their, their lives don't matter. At least I don't believe it. I haven't seen anybody really reach out to them. Or except for ACLU, you know, but there's only so much we could do. But I do believe that we have to keep, I have to keep on calling people, try to get attention because nobody else will. Um, you're obviously trying to call attention to your husband's case and others uh, in his uh, situation. Um, again, what, what would you most hope would be done? For them to get released, who, I mean, for their cases to actually be looked at each case. You know, and to be those that are, you know, um, pre-trial to be released. And when when things go back to normal, if they need to go back to um, after trial, if they need to go to jail, if they get convicted, then, you know, we're not trying to trying to say, oh, it's a get out of free jail card because they're going to have to meet. They're going to have to do what they're going to have to do. 
when it comes to the justice system, they're gonna, if they get convicted, they'll go in, back into jail. But right now, it's just I really don't see why they should be in those kind of conditions. The jail is not equipped for the. They have this protocol, and in, they said that they couldn't meet the protocol. They can't meet the protocol. So if they can't, they just need to go, let them go, be released pre-trial. There's no, there's no reason why those people should, those men should die in there. Just because, whatever, you know, whatever, if those mis- mishandled. And if they get more cases right now, the cases are up to 420 cases at Weaver County Jail. So that thing, it's not going to go away, at least not this year. And so for them to just be sitting there sick for, just because of the negligence of the Weaver County Jail, it's not right. It doesn't, it's not right with me. Have you uh, reached out to jail officials? Have you heard? Uh, what are they saying? They haven't answered my... I've, I've reached out. Nobody's answered me. Nobody's ever contacted me back. I've texted. I've um, called and I've emailed. And I've had nobody. Hmm. Uh, so you're you're uh, vulnerable, right? You said you have an autoimmune disease. So you, do you have yes. to be extra careful, I suppose? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. And, and you have kids? I'm working from home. And you have kids? And yes, I have kids. Yeah. Um, so that, so that's, a, I guess, added pressure for you. Oh, yeah, it is. It's an added pressure. And I'm just, and I work, like I said, and I work, and I'm starting school this fall. And so I have all those things. But I know that if I don't do this, nobody else will. And it's not just for my husband. It's for every other person that's in the jail. Because I feel like nobody cares. You know? Yeah. So I'm going to keep on trying to contact people, sending out emails, you know, trying to, what I can do. See if I can get heard. See if someone could do something. I want a solution. Nobody's here. They say all oh, this and this, and no solution has been offered. You know, it's just they're just stuck. My husband's a federal inmate, so he's stuck in limbo for another year. No, I can't. I can't see that happening. I don't want that. You know, like I can't let that happen. Mm. Either he, yes. Uh, well, thank you so much for for uh, for telling your husband's story and and uh, of course the other inmates uh, there as well. Uh, anything else you'd like to say? No, that I want I want something to be done. If someone's out there and if someone has a solution, if someone um, can help me, um, you know, reach out to me. My name is Mara Cristobal. You have my information. If they can contact you, and I have, I'm just a single mom trying to trying to do it. You know. And so if anybody's out there can offer a solution or help me, please contact me. I would really appreciate it. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm still going to try to help as many people as I can. All right. Well, thank th- you for having me with you. You, you bet. Thank you so much for, for telling us your story. Appreciate it. You too. Bye. Bye now. So this is my conversation with Myra Cristobal. Uh, we recorded that about an hour ago and uh, heard telling her a story of her husband, who is incarcerated in the... Uh, Weber County Jail, who has uh, contracted COVID-19 there. Um, We are uh, taking a look at uh, coronavirus pandemic's effects, uh, COVID-19's effects in Utah's jails and prisons. We bring in now uh, Salt Lake Tribune reporter Jessica Miller. Jessica Miller, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. I appreciate that. You've been reporting on this, so we'd appreciate you uh, joining us. We also welcome in Angie Milgate. Uh, Understand uh, your ex-husband is incarcerated in the Washington County Jail. That is correct. Thank you for having me. We'll, we'll have you as we go along tell your story, or your husband's story. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Jessica Miller. Uh, so I understand a couple of hot spots there, Weber County Jail and Washington County Jail. Is, is that uh, still the case? Yeah, as far as we know, that's that's where the, the biggest outbreaks have been so far. Early on, there had been a couple of cases um, in the Salt Lake County Jail, but it seems like you know, we're getting to the triple-digit numbers now. That's happening primarily in uh, Weber County and Washington County. So triple-digit numbers. So, so, so uh, I don't know, percentages. Your report from earlier this month said that uh, 20% of the jail population um, in Washington County had tested positive for, for COVID. 
Yes, and that number has peaked over. Uh, it's, I know it's over 100. I haven't checked with them in a, in a week or so, so my numbers might be outdated that way. I know in Weber County, I just checked with the lieutenant yesterday, and he said that there were 120 um, positive cases there. So both facilities now have, have reached uh, triple-digit numbers. I think the one at Weber County might be a little bit larger than the one um, in Washington so obviously worrisome to the families, worrisome to the inmates, right? I'm guessing worrisome to mm-hmm. officials. Uh, what are uh, what are officials uh, saying? Uh, those facilities uh, or, know, or others? They've said that they've tried to take measures to stop the this, right? They've they've heightened sanitation efforts. They've given um, face masks. They are trying to uh, reduce the jail population. That's a big one. If you have less people in there, then you know they can kind of spread out. And so if people are sick, they can they can spread them out a little bit more. But you hear from the ACLU, you hear from these inmates and their family members, and they say that that these efforts, you know, aren't aren't enough. They're not releasing people fast enough, or they're not getting enough face masks to be able to, to clean them and use another one. And so there's kind of this, uh, this this disagreement between what the jail is doing and whether people who are incarcerated feel like that's enough to keep them safe. Yeah, certainly uh, Myra's husband would do, is saying that he, he's not getting treatment fast enough, he's not getting the equipment. and uh, But officials are saying that they're, they're I guess they're, they're saying differently, that they are getting the, the protective measures. Yeah, and it's been interesting, you know, talking with, you know, with her and with other inmates and their, and their families. You know, I had received an email just over the weekend from an inmate who said, you know, I'm really sick. People around, this is from Weber County, you know, people around me are very sick. I saw the jail, you know, someone take some or walk a, a man down the stairs. You know, people are very sick in here. And then when I asked the jail officials, you know, is anyone sick? Is anyone hospitalized? They say, oh, they have mild to moderate cold symptoms. So it's it's been really interesting. There's definitely a disconnect between what the inmates are reporting to their families and what the jail officials are saying is happening. Hmm. Now, the, the, a couple of the, uh, hot spots, very hot spots, it sounds like, Weber County and, and Washington County. Uh, it sounds like, uh, I guess, a lot of jail facilities are so far doing okay. Do we do we know, are they taking different measures, or, or <laughs> are they just lucky at this point? <laughs> thing is because you've looked at, uh, across the country and this is something that has you know uh, jails are been huge hot spots around the country so far and so it's really interesting in utah we didn't really see that spike until three or four months into the pandemic and uh, you know it, it's it could be because other places are reducing the jail population more they don't have as many inmates to begin with i know with weber county the the uh it, the virus came in through a federal inmate who had been transferred there so they they are. They have a transfer program, so that's a little bit different than the other jails. So it's probably a mixture of luck, um, and maybe a little bit about how their their intake policies are, and, and whether they're letting inmates in early or even booking them in to begin with. Mm. Of course, uh, more questions as we go along, but I want to uh, turn to Angie Milgate. Um, understand your your ex husband is in the Washington County Jail. My understanding is he's a state inmate, but of course uh, the state doesn't have room at the their main facilities, so so they contract out to to the jails. Is that correct? Yes. Um, for the last few years, we've been dealing with the state program, which is called Inmate Placement Program, or as the inmates know it, IPP or countied out is what they call it. And it is the program that is designed to uh, spread out the state inmates across the state of Utah. And there is a benefit for that in that every bed that a county rents to the state for an inmate, they get thousands of dollars annually for that bed. And so it is a means of moving uh, state funds into counties, and some counties get uh, that is their entire income base if it's a small county facility. Some of the facilities are 100% rented to the state, and of the 26 counties that we have in the state of Utah, 21 of them are involved in this program. The problem for the inmates is they become stuck in a black hole. The Utah Department of Corrections say they can't do anything because they do not have jurisdiction over the county and they can't tell the county facility how to run. The county facility says we can't do anything 
with these particular inmates because they're wards of the state, and so the state has to tell us what to do. So mm-hmm. it is this unending nightmare of nobody being accountable for how these inmates are being treated, specifically in the IPP program. Mm-hmm. So your ex-husband, of course, um, he's sitting there in a hot spot, right? Um, has he contracted COVID? Um, he has not. Mm-hmm. The um, At one point, one-third of the inmate population was positive. There were 100 positive inmates and 10 positive staff members when it peaked. When you talk to the officials down in Washington County and um, I have interacted with Mike Haddon, who is the director of UDOC. I've talked with several people down in Washington County, as well as Captain Honey, who is over the IPP down there in Washington County. They all will say how wonderful they're doing and how successful their plan has been. But they have been negligent in the beginning, which is how this outbreak started in Washington County. Uh, Now they are running behind the eight ball to put out fires. And because uh, my former husband is in the IPP program, he and the other 10 men who lived in his housing unit, they are housed in a building separate from the main jail down there as part of the IPP program. So they were isolated and sort of quarantined away from the rest of the people. When the outbreak happened, the entire inmate population inside the facility, other than the 11 men in the separate building, went into lockdown, leaving these 11 men to do all of the jobs around the jail the cooking, the cleaning, even though these men are traditionally, through the state, supposed to be working the road crews out doing the landscaping for Washington County and cleaning up the highways and working out there. They were moved inside to do the work of what normal county inmates are doing. So it's been a very very big convoluted mess and putting men's lives at risk And there hasn't been proper safety precautions taken from the very beginning. And they didn't start happening until after the outbreak. And then it, the escalation of it was astounding. It went from four cases to 96 cases in less than 10 days. It just multiplies so fast that they can't, they can't do anything but, but just be at the mercy of the wave that goes through the space. Mm. What is your former husband uh, saying? I, I assume he's he's worried. He he has been very worried, and the thing that that is frustrating for us is every single man on that work crew is on the last leg of their sentence. They all have release dates, and most of them have release dates within the next six months. And the UDLC says we're releasing all inmates who have release dates within 180 days as long as they have an approved address. We have men on this work crew who are down to uh, 60 days and they still haven't been released. But the board has said, okay, they're ready to be released. We've given them a date. The board does not choose to release to give dates to people that they believe are a high risk. I mean, why would the board do that? That is that would be catastrophe for them if they were releasing high-risk inmates all the time. So they very consciously make a choice when they say, okay, these inmates are ready. Let's release them at some punitive date in the future. But now we think they're ready to go. And so these men are having their lives put at risk because, they're stuck in this black hole of IPP where nobody will be accountable for how they're being handled. Mm. Uh, Jessica Miller, uh, are you hearing anything about uh, the, you know the, these men in IPP or are uh, you know the, the the inmates uh, from the state facilities who are out in these county facilities? 
Yes, yeah. The the Department of Corrections actually has kept a, a list of those people who are in the IPT program who have tested positive. And it looks like as of today, there's 23 inmates who are housed at, at county jails. I think most of them are down in Washington County who have tested positive. And, you know, I've asked the same question of prison officials. What oversight are they offering for uh, these counties to make sure that, you know, they're at the same level that, that the prison is at? And, and I was basically told that it's a contract. And so past that contract, how they how the counties handle those uh, you know how they're reacting to this that that's up to the county and not really the up to the the prison hmm. well let's take a break now uh, when we come back I want to talk about the the main uh, prison facilities how things are going there the, the Draper and and Gunnison um, and uh, resources uh, for families uh, we'll continue our conversation with Angie Milgate and with uh, uh, whose former husband is incarcerated at Washington County uh, jail one of the hotspots, um, and Jessica Miller, a reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. We're talking about uh, the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, COVID-19, on Utah's jails and, uh, and prisons. And uh, we'll have more following this. This is a one-minute preview of Episode 7 of Debunked. I'm Tim Light, and I'm joined by Mindy Vincent, Shanti Moritz, and Dr. Aaron Fanning-Madden. The myth we're debunking today in one minute is the only legitimate treatment for addiction is abstinence. It's a huge bunch of science that we seem to like push aside and not really pay attention to because it doesn't jive with this long-held belief about recovery that comes from nowhere. Like, you don't get to decide what works for other people, and if you really don't want your loved one to die, then let's support their pathway to recovery so they can stay alive. That's why I'm so grateful to be recovering today because there's so many different ways to do it. There are these medications that most people don't know about, and if they know about them, they tend to have pretty negative perceptions of them. But these medications are backed by a lot of science, and they work. Join us for the full debunking of this myth on Episode 7 of Debunked. You can find the episode on the podcast app, upr.org, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members in Silicon Slopes magazine, focused on Utah tech and startup industries. Supporting good causes that affect us all. Information about weekly town hall meetings or advertising in the magazine at siliconslopesmagazine.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams, we are talking about the effects of the coronavirus uh, and uh, COVID 19 in uh, Utah's jails and prisons. Of course, inmates are especially vulnerable uh, in close quarters and uh, not able to leave, obviously. Uh, there are a couple of hot spots uh, continuing, uh, Washington County Jail and Weber County Jail. We heard earlier in the program from uh, Myra Cristobal, whose husband uh, has COVID-19 and is incarcerated in the Weber County Jail. We're talking with Angie Milgate, whose former husband is incarcerated in the Washington County Jail. Uh, hasn't uh, contracted the virus at this point, but is very worried. And we're talking with uh, Salt Lake Tribune reporter uh, Jessica Miller. Uh, uh, Jessica Miller, I want to start with you in this segment. Uh, what's the situation in the main uh, state prison facilities, uh, Draper and, and Gunnison? So it looks like at those facilities, there's been four inmates in Draper that have tested positive and, and none in Gunnison. So there's definitely, uh, there has not been an outbreak in those facilities in the way that we're seeing in Weber and Washington County. What are officials saying there? What what precautions are they saying that they're taking? Um, I think that it's, it's about the same, you know, a lot of sanitation. Um, it, interestingly enough, you know, outside all of us, we're all using a lot of hand sanitizer that's not actually available to most of those inmates in the prison because of the percent of alcohol that it contains. So they're giving them a lot of soap. Um, they're canceling visitation, you know, limiting programs, not allowing volunteers in. So that helps really limit the number of people that are coming into the, the jail or into the prison. You know, it's, it's, caused by community spread. And so the less people in the community you can bring into the prison, the lower likelihood that, that it could spread. So all of those sort of programs have been have been canceled uh, in those facilities since March, uh, for better or worse. I mean, it, obviously, uh, this might be detrimental to the, the inmates in some regards if their programs are canceled, they're not able to see their loved ones and things like that. I think you said earlier, I, I want to make sure, uh, so some of the methods that I've been hearing about for jails and prisons slowing intake, um, increasing early releases. Are those things going on in Utah? Yes, 
yeah, that's been happening at the at the prison. They have been releasing, as as mentioned earlier, those who are uh, within you know hundred or, or you know within a certain amount of their uh, their sentences being served. I think the biggest uh, decrease we've seen is in the Salt Lake County Jail. They've done a lot to to reduce their numbers. I think they usually hover around you know two thousand people, and they're down to uh, about. 1400 I think so so they've been doing a lot where you know they're telling their officers if you if you come across somebody it's a nonviolent crime just cite them rather than take them into jail and, and risk that exposure so they've kind of shifted the way that they're doing uh, corrections here in Utah to try to keep as many people who aren't violent out of the jails I want to turn back to Angie Milgate. I understand you have to leave us here in about uh, a few minutes. Uh, so the, the early releases, I'm I'm sure you'd be in favor of that for, for your former husband. Yes, that would, given that he is within, he's now under 180 days of his release date um, and has been a model inmate the entire time that he's been incarcerated, the given that the board of directors has, or not the board of directors, excuse me, the board of um, pardons and parole have said he's ready to be released, uh, then release him, especially now that there is an outbreak in the facility that he is uh, currently living in. And, you know, I do want to say that the Utah Department of Corrections has gone above and beyond inside the two prison facilities to make sure that those prison facilities stay safe. And they have been following the CDC guidelines. And so they've done a great job in those two facilities. The problem is their state inmates that are stuck in the county are not receiving the same care. My former husband didn't receive a mask until after they were full-blown in their outbreak there and he has only had one mask the entire time and it's not a medical grade mask it's a simple cotton mask most of the guards were not wearing PPE most of the guards were going between the positive cases the negative cases the medical ward and and the area where my former lives so they were just meandering through the entire population, there weren't security measures being taken fast enough. And they were—they have slowed down the intake there. They generally run with about 450 inmates. Right now they're at 300, around 300. So they have slowed down the intake. But this started because they brought somebody in that was positive. They tra- it was transferred there. And... Th- Again, it's, re- it's a county facility, so that county has jurisdiction on what happens there. If these men and women have end dates in sight, one of the fastest ways to create space would to be to let them be released. They've already been told that they're ready to be released, so let's release them. Is it uh, is lack of action on the, 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 the men in your husband's situation, your former husband's situation, is that this, this uh, kind of this limbo situation that they're in? Do you think that is having an effect? Y- yes, there, it, it is the scariest kind of limbo. And I have been dealing with this for years. Um, as Myra was saying, there is no one who advocates for the inmates that because the general population has the mindset that they've committed a crime, therefore they, they are able to endure whatever it is that is placed before them. That's their own fault. They've made their bed lie in it. And so what I have discovered, you know, I had, I had this naive sense that our justice system worked effectively until I had somebody that I loved inside the system, and I realized what madness it is, and it is this unending circular nightmare of nobody being accountable for what's really going on behind those bars. Hmm. And when the inmates call out for help, it is as if everybody goes blind, deaf, mute, and dumb about it. 
and just puts up their hand and says, you know, it'll be okay. They'll be okay. And you can see it happening across the nation. The hot spots across the nation are inside the correctional facilities. Uh, just and to, I'm yeah, go, go ahead. Sad. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm just sad about it. Yeah. Uh, we just have a, a couple more minutes uh, with you. We'll take a break after. Um, I wonder, obviously, this this affects, this is not just inmates, this affects families. What do you talk a little bit about that? Yes. You know, it's interesting because in, in the beginning of us, the IPP officials, the inmate placement program officials kept saying to me, we make our choices about where the inmates go based on what's best for the facility. They don't take into consideration what moving these inmates around because every time they move an inmate, they take away all of their belongings and they put them into another place where they have to actually figure out what the chain of command is among the inmates there, who's the alpha, how do, what's the social structure there. And so they are in a state of constant trauma. You cannot heal, you cannot rehabilitate when there is trauma recurring on a regular basis. Your system just cannot find balance. Neither can the families of these inmates because every single time an inmate is picked up and moved, they're put in solitary, the inmates lose connection with their family, the family has no idea what's going on. And with this COVID outbreak, we have families across the nation who are watching their loved ones literally being set in front of a random firing squad. We don't know what's going to happen if they get COVID. And inside a facility that has medical capacity to help maybe two people at one time, when you have 100 people that have a very possibly fatal illness, it's just, it's a numbers game. They're literally playing Russian roulette with these people's lives. And that's not okay. That's not what the justice system is supposed to do. The, the Utah Department of Corrections say that they create a culture of honor, accountability, and integrity. And they, they foster an environment of professionalism and compassion. But that, that isn't what's happening they're, they're literally putting these people's lives at stake because of some unprecedented thing that they have no policies and protocols for. So four months later, I mean, we're four months into this outbreak. We're four months into this pandemic. And they're still running around saying, we don't do that. They do that. But when I talk to they, they say, we don't do that. They do that. And it's an entirely different they. they. The five agencies involved in this justice system here in Utah are just passing the buck. And as a result, we have men and women getting sick because they're not doing what needs to be done to keep them safe, which is their responsibility. Well, we, I know we have to let you go here. Um, Angie Milgate, her former husband is incarcerated in the Washington County Jail and have been telling his story and uh, related uh, uh, feelings. Uh, Angie Milgate, th- thank you so much. Appreciate it. Mm. Thank you so much for ha- having me, and thank you for helping us to get the word, word out in whatever way we can. I really do appreciate it. All right. Um, we're going to take a break now. When we come back, we'll uh, conclude the program with Salt Lake Tribune reporter uh, Jessica Miller. She's been reporting on uh, the, the uh, COVID-19's effects on Utah's jails and prisons. That's our focus uh, for today. We'll have more following this. This is Amy Anderson for Bringing More to Life. We are grateful for the many ways our families and communities support the residents of nursing homes, assisted living centers, and seniors everywhere. This population is at greater risk for being affected by COVID-19. Nursing homes and assisted livings across the nation have placed restrictions on visitors to protect their residents. However, restricting visits does not mean curtailing communication from family and friends. We encourage you to use email, FaceTime, Skype, snail mail, or a simple old-fashioned telephone call to check in with the seniors you know. 
communicate with their family or care center to find the best way to connect. Together, we will continue to provide the physical and social support our community members deserve and desire. Support for bringing more to life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and the Herald Journal, your in-depth source of local Cache Valley news, delivering local, state, and national news directly to your home, offering online and U.S. mail newspaper delivery. Information at hjnews.com or at 752-2121. Thank you for joining us for Access Utah. If you've just joined us, we're talking about uh, Utah's jails and prisons, specifically uh, with the COVID-19. And uh, we do have a couple of hotspots in the state. We've been focusing on those. Weber County Jail and uh, Washington County Jail. Earlier in the program, we talked with Myra Cristobal, whose husband uh, has COVID-19 and is incarcerated at Weber County Jail. And uh, we were talking with Angie Milgate as well, whose former husband is incarcerated in the Washington County Jail. As I mentioned, uh, Salt Lake Tribune reporter Jessica Miller has been uh, doing reports on this, and uh, we have her for another 10 minutes or so uh, in the program. If you, by the way, have a question, uh, you can get that to us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So Jessica Miller, uh, understand ACLU did bring lawsuits against, I don't know, was it all the counties? Um, This was early on. Yes, yeah, they sued um, every county and then state officials as well, so for the the prison officials as well. Uh, That lawsuit was thrown out by the Utah Supreme Court. So they were asking for, you know, the Utah Supreme Court to step in to order the jails to do do things differently, to take different measures. And the Supreme Court... didn't didn't think that this was the venue. This wasn't the the way to go about asking for for these sorts of changes. Yeah, I, I recall uh, uh, Sim Gill at uh, Salt Lake County said, "Oh, this is this is diverting our resources from where we should be working." Uh, ACLU, uh, I think, believes this was still a useful exercise. Yes, yeah. I mean, a lot of the the information about what the jail was, the different jails were doing to prevent the coronavirus from spreading, that all came out because of because of the lawsuit. You know, in response to that that lawsuit, and so we were able to get a better picture of what was of what was going on. Of course, this was kind of early on in the pandemic, and at that time, the county officials all were saying, you know, every we're doing a really good job. There's no coronavirus in the jails. You shouldn't be suing us. This is not the time. Um, and now we're kind of seeing that things have changed and now there is coronavirus in some of these jails. Um, and then recently, just last week, actually some federal public defenders filed a lawsuit against Weber County Jail specifically um, targeting them and their response and saying that they didn't do enough to keep this outbreak from happening in the jail. Mm. Uh, well, what about the, so the, the lawsuits were dismissed against the counties, uh, the, against the state as well? Yes. So the uh, the ACLU actually asked for the counties to be dismissed out of the lawsuit, which is kind of interesting because Salt Lake County actually responded and said they didn't want to be dismissed, that they basically wanted to keep the lawsuit going so they could show, you know, all these efforts that they've taken. Um, and so initially it was just going to be primarily against the prison, the state officials, but then the Utah Supreme Court just dismissed the whole thing. And so the the argument of whether the counties would stay in the lawsuit or not was kind of new after they just they threw the whole lawsuit out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to, we've talked about this early, but I want to make sure that the, the voices of prison and jail officials are, are heard through you. <laughs> um, so just to, <laughs> just to reiterate, um, the, the prison officials, jail officials, they are saying, apparently by and large, that they, they believe they have good protective measures in place. Right. I mean, obviously, there's there's going to be things in a jail or a prison that you can't control. It's it's congregate care. I mean, people are living in close quarters with one another. They're saying that they're doing the best that they can in trying to spread those inmates out and really reducing the, the population so there's less people in there by giving them masks, by giving them, you know, sanitation supplies, soap. Uh, but, you know, there's really only so much you can do. Like in Weber County, for instance, they're giving the inmates masks, but they're not mandating that they wear them. They're not using force to make them wear the masks. And so, you know, kind of balancing how to keep the inmates safe while still giving them, you know, the, the choice uh, is challenging. 
Uh, earlier in the program, we heard uh, uh, Myra Cristobal uh, said, and that, that we and uh, I read this in an email from him, uh, uh, from her her husband as well, is incarcerated in the Weber County Jail. Uh, he mentioned that he feels like he does, an inmate doesn't really have a voice. Uh, is what a, what are the jail and prison officials uh, saying that they believe they have processes in place so that if an inmate has a complaint or worries, that they can get that uh, to the to the proper places. Yes, that's what they're saying. I mean, that they have, that they have the the medical care there to, to help people uh, to you know to treat them, and if they if they need that care, that it's available to them. Uh, that is the subject of this latest lawsuit with the federal defenders. They're saying that you know that at least at the Weaver County Jail, the inmates aren't really getting much medical care and related to coronavirus um, beyond a temperature check, which is not really care. That's you know more figuring out who has the virus. And then those who are being seen, they're, they're being charged $15 copay. So, uh, so there's a cost associated with, with saying that you're sick and, and seeking help. Hmm. Um, so what about uh, families? What are the families you're talking to? They uh, Obviously, the visitation, I think, has been cut down as a precautionary measure, right? Yes, and you know it's interesting at the at the county jail level, a lot of these um, these jails already had video visitation in place, so um, so there never really was face to face interactions. In some jails, you know, you, even if you went to the jail, you still could only see them via video. So for some people, it hasn't really changed a whole lot. Um, in the state prison in, in Gunnison, um, they don't have video visitation, but they did. They still did face-to-face visits, uh, contact visits. You can, you know, hug them when you go in, and that's been canceled since March. And I've heard, you know, complaints from from inmate families that, you know, how do we not have a better system in place by now? Obviously, things. This is going to be long term, and they haven't been able to to see their family members via video or, or any other way since since March, and they've only been able to keep in contact through these phone calls. Mm-hmm. What are uh, prison and jail officials saying to the, uh, I'm sure that the argument has been put to them, that COVID-19 raises the stakes, right? The, 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 the inmates are receiving their punishment. They're, they're hopefully being rehabilitated. But we as a society and the inmates uh, particularly didn't sign up for, you know, for something like COVID. <laughs> Right. And I think that that's kind of the interesting thing that we're seeing playing out is, you know, is deciding who are who are the people that need to be incarcerated. And, you know, if these nonviolent offenders are are being released and, you know, there's alternate ways. I think that once this all settles down, if if it does, uh, hopefully it does, um, I think it'll cause some really interesting conversations about criminal justice reform. And if these you know, were people that didn't need to be incarcerated in this time of a pandemic, why should we incarcerate them? you know, later when things kind of settle down, if they weren't violent and they're okay to be in the community. Mm. Um, I, I just want to read this. This is uh, from Facebook page of the Utah Prisoner Advocate Network, the, the group. I, I don't mean to make light at all of the jeopardy, you know, that inmates are facing with, with COVID, uh, but uh, this idea of a silver lining, you know, that um, so uh, just to, I'll read the sentence. Could social distancing make detectives better interviewers and reduce the chance of coercion and abuse? And it shows a picture of a detective, I guess, interviewing a, uh, an inmate uh, through through video means. Uh, these are the kinds of things, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the kinds of things uh, that the, we'll be exploring, I guess, later on once things uh, slow down. Right, exactly. I think that we're seeing, you know, the criminal justice system and the court system, be, it, there's some big challenges that they're facing because of the coronavirus. I mean, as mentioned earlier in the program, there's just been a standstill in court cases. And how do you go forward, you know, doing those court cases with all these restrictions in place? And, you know, how do you change your investigative methods if we're supposed to be social distancing or, or you know, even someone who's on parole? You know, usually they would go into their home quite frequently for, for home checks, and, and that's being reduced. And so how do you keep track of, of, of parole offenders and make sure they're, you know, staying on track? And so I think that on many different levels of the criminal justice system, we're going to be seeing uh, a shifting and, and some conversations about whether the way that things have always been done, if that's the way that things should be done moving forward. Just to have a couple of minutes left. I'm curious, what, what questions do you have going? What, what's, uh, what are the kind of the big uh, main points that you're going to be investigating uh, under this topic? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, 
I mean, I think for me, I would like to know more about the medical care that the inmates are getting. And also, I think uh, knowing how many inmates are tested. I, uh, we see, we're seeing very high numbers in Washington and in Weber because they're doing mass testing. And, you know, I haven't been able to call every single county jail, but but part of me worries that, uh, you know, maybe there's outbreaks in other facilities that we just don't know about because they haven't been been doing testing. So I think that that's some good questions to ask just as far as, you know, how many people are being tested and, and do we have a, a good picture of of how far this is really spread inside jail and prison walls. Mm. Uh, in the meantime, if, uh, you know, someone uh, has interesting story they feel to tell, that I guess contact you at the Tribune. Yes, yeah, I'm definitely interested in hearing from, you know, I've, I've had inmates write me letters, uh, sending emails, you know, family members calling me on behalf of their inmate, inmate family members. Um, so any, any information about what's going on inside the jail definitely would be appreciated. And people can contact us as well, upr.org. Uh, um, so just Jessica Miller, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate your, your coverage. Uh, I'll mention as a, as a parting shot here, you were part of that team that won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for local reporting. So <laughs> I'll just throw yes, that in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you, you guys do good work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate also Angie Milgate, who has uh, joined us early in the program. Her uh, former husband is incarcerated at the Washington County Jail. And earlier in the program, we talked with Myra Cristobal, whose husband has COVID-19 and is incarcerated at the Weber County Jail. Uh, we are going to talk about police reform uh, tomorrow um, and hope you'll uh, join that. Of course, that's the big push uh, in the protests we've been seeing around the country. We'll uh, talk about some proposals uh, uh, being put out there for Utah specifically regarding police reform. Hope you'll tune in for that and uh, join that conversation. And we appreciate you joining Access Utah today. This is Craig Jessup, director of the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, inviting you to celebrate Christmas in July with the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra and Utah Public Radio. During this time when public performances are limited, UPR will broadcast two of AFC's Christmas concerts. Join us July 24th and July 31st at 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. for a special broadcast of the 2015 concert featuring Jenny Oaks Baker and Jenny Jordan Frogley and the 2016 concert featuring AFC's first performance with Gentry. Support for this special American Festival Chorus and Orchestra Christmas in July broadcast comes from Utah Humanities Cares funding and the National Endowment for the Arts. Listen July 24th and July 31st here or online at upr.org or through the free UPR mobile app. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Extension. With berries and fruit in season, jams, jellies, and spreads work well for preserving the harvest. For well-set fruit, closely follow the recipe and don't adjust the sugar amount. Information at canning.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard online at upr.org and on the UPR app. My My name is Andy Keller. I wake up to Utah Public Radio in the morning to 89.5.